invite you to turn with me in your Bible first to Exodus chapter 20. We began uh, last week a series um, on the Ten Commandments as we work our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's where we find ourselves in the Catechism. And last week we considered the first commandment, and this week we'll be taking up the second. And just a reminder what we said last week, how God establishes a relationship with his people, and that relationship we see throughout the scriptures as referred to as a covenant. God makes a covenant with his people. It's a relationship in which God promises things and then obligates his people. And we had said also that this covenant, this relationship, does not begin with what man does for God, with our good works, but rather this covenant, this relationship begins with God's grace. And we see this reflected even in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. It begins with that wonderful, beautiful preface, right? I am the Lord your God. And, and, and from there, God then calls us in light of the redemption that he worked long ago in Egypt, delivering his people, in light of the redemption that he has worked in Jesus Christ in setting us free from our sin and our misery. So too, in light of that, with gratitude in our hearts, he then calls us to walk in his ways. And so that, as we're going to see with the second commandment as well. So we'll begin reading at verse 4, Exodus chapter 20, to read the second commandment. And then we're going to turn uh, to Matthew chapter 15. But first, Exodus 20, beginning at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're going to turn next to Matthew 15. Begin reading at verse 10. There it says, And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn uh, next in the back of our hymnals to our catechism, uh, to Lord's Day 35. And you'll find that on page 890. And the catechism is simply just a teaching tool as it works through the truths of Scripture in question and answer format. And so it's going to open up the second commandment for us and what the Scriptures teach regarding it. So Lord, say 35, I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answer. So question 96, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, 
nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. Question 97. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. Question 98. But may not images as books for the unlearned, which was a phrase used during the time of the Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church, may um, not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. So far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he summarized the Ten Commandments of God's law by saying that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And on those two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. Paul himself summarizes it even more succinctly when he says that love is the fulfillment of God's law. Now as you read through the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that very concrete sins are forbidden. You shall not make, even as we see in the Second Commandment, for yourself a carved image. And in many ways, these commandments deal with things that are external to us, our behavior. But Jesus reminds us that while our external behaviors are important, the more important thing is the deeper thing, which is the matter of the heart, which is why God's commandments, even the second commandment here, is summarized in terms of loving God. And yet, the second commandment may appear to us as probably the most external-looking thing, right? What's presented to us is the forbidding of making carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. The three domains of our creation, the entirety of reality, we are not to bow down to them or worship them, right? It's dealing with very external things, the making of idols, the bowing down to nature or things, the creatures around us. But we ought to keep in mind as we think about the second commandment, that it still pertains to the heart. And it still pertains to that which flows from the heart and whether or not there is true love in our hearts for the Lord. And we see this drawn out because on the one hand, you'll notice we're not to make carved images. And you'll see the reason given for not making carved images to worship God, the reason given here surprisingly, it's not God saying, for the Lord your God has no body, which he doesn't, as the scriptures teach. But the reason that is given for us not to make carved images actually presses into the very heart of God for his people. Right? So a very external thing, but it deals with the heart of God. It's grounded in his very heart. Notice what it says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water Under the earth, you shall not bow to them or serve them for, right, this is the ground, the reason for this commandment, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. If there's any emotion that grips the heart more, or the emotion that grips the heart most, it would be that of jealousy. 
And of course, the idea of jealousy here could have a negative connotation, but with regard to the Lord, it has to do with his deep love for his people. The jealousy that's spoken of here that grounds this commandment, it reflects the Lord's love for his people, the love a husband would have for his bride. That's the kind of jealousy that is spoken of here. And not only that do we see reflected the heart of the commandment in terms of God's own heart, but then also in the later portions of this commandment, where it speaks of those who hate him and those who love him and keep his commandments, right? So the second commandment might appear to deal with external things, right? Don't make carved images and don't bow down to nature and creatures. But really, the commandment is meant to pierce to our very hearts, even as it brings us into the very heart of God for us as his people. And so as we think through this commandment uh, rather briefly, um, I want to think under this theme, heart to heart. Heart to heart. Beginning first with the heart of God, and then secondly, considering the heart of God's people as it's expressed in worship. And so firstly, as we think about the second commandment, as we said, it's grounded in the heart of God. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The jealousy of God for his people, as we said just a moment ago, is the same jealousy that a husband has for his wife. And it presses us then to think about the love of God for his people. Again, the commandment's not grounded in a this idea that God has no body, which again, the scriptures remind us that he doesn't, but it's grounded in the marriage relationship that God has established with his people. This is referred to as God's covenant with his people. And so you might imagine the scene then that around Sinai, as you hear the lightnings and the thundering as God delivers his commandments to his people, you might also hear in the background wedding bells chiming as well. Here, God is taking a people to himself. God is bringing a people and placing his name upon them to be their God. I am the Lord, your God. And if there's one point that I've been trying to hammer, it's those possessives in Scripture. right? It's not just, I am the Lord, and I'm jealous. But I am the Lord, your God. Right? To say that God is my God is a beautiful and staggering thing. You know, we're not... It's language we're not often familiar with, at least in our modern day, the idea of having a God. But all people have a God, right? For most people, apart from Christ, if not for all people, rather, apart from Christ, their God is ultimately themselves. They worship, they serve themselves. But for the Christian, for us, we say, the Lord my God. I have the Lord as my God. And God reminds you of that truth. I am the Lord your God. And so wedding bells chiming on, at Sinai as he brings a people, he brings a bride to himself and commits himself to her. He commits himself to you, to be your God. And within that marriage bond, within that love that God has for his people, the love of his covenant, God then desires to be the single object of devotion and worship of his people, right? Within the bonds of marriage, right? A husband desires that his wife and the wife desires that her husband, right? Seek no other and love no other but, but, but themselves. To love her husband, to love his bride. And God is also demonstrating that, that his jealousy grounds this relationship and even is going to ground this, this covenant, 
And so it reminds us also not only that God has made a covenant with us, but that our religion, true Christian religion, is based upon a God who is supremely personal, who gives himself as in marriage to his people in a covenant. One of my favorite verses is from Psalm 25, 14. And it says there that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And in Hebrew parallelism, those two lines interpret one another, right? The friendship of the Lord is his covenant with his people. And so when we think about God's covenant, we are reminded that our God is a supremely personal God who relates to his people and gives himself to them and devotes himself to his people to love them and to serve them. And this is, the commandment says, is the ground for why we ought to not make images. And it's kind of interesting. How do those two things then relate, right? How does the jealousy of the Lord our God lead to the commandment, you shall, make, um, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth? Well, it seems that as these images are made, even if these images are made in order to aid in the worship of God, what ends up happening is that to these images, his people's devo- the devotion of God's people are transferred from God to these images. The, the devotion that is to be to God alone is then transferred to these images, and what ends up settling in is a kind of superstition. And superstition is a form of magic in some sense in which you believe that this object contains within itself some type of power to rescue you, to give you safety, to provide for you. And the Lord is saying that that my jealousy for you excludes such things because such things will transfer and divert your affection and your devotion to me away from me to these other objects. You see, as we think about then the heart of the second commandment, it moves us then to think about the heart of God's people for him. Right? The heart of God, I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, leads then to God desiring the singular devotion of his people. He desires their hearts. And this is reflected all throughout the scriptures That while God does require of his people external things, right? Our bodies are important. What we do with our bodies are significant. But all throughout the scriptures, God is reminding us that it's really a matter of the heart. That God is not simply desirous of external actions, but he desires the heart of his people. In Joel chapter 2, verses uh, 12 and 13, God says to his people, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And even also in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, right? Israel was an idolatrous people, and Israel still went through the religious motions, but their hearts were far from God. Isaiah 29, 13, and 14 says, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will do again 
wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Right? So God is not merely pleased with the external actions of his people, even if they are the very things that he prescribed for them to do. God desires the heart of his people. And that's really what the second commandment is getting at, right? The idea of worship. And there's no greater expression of our hearts than in what we worship. And so the second commandment is reminding us that worship comes, true worship comes from the heart. And true worship of God then comes from a heart that has been changed from loving the world to now loving God. And so the second commandment then deals with what is most central, uh, what is most important, what is most defining of you, what you worship. And God is saying that in worshiping him as you were created to do, as God designed you to do as his image bearers, that true worship of him then must flow from the heart. Now there's a lot that then can be said about that, right? As God um, opens bare his own heart, I am the Lord, your God, and I am a jealous God for you, and then calls for the hearts of his people in response and worship for him, it then leads us to ask the question, how do I tune my heart to sing his praise, right, as the hymn goes? How, do, how does my heart change? And in, modern, in our modern society, Modern psychology is prevalent, and modern psychology is deterministic, right? You simply do what the things that are inside of you and they control. You can't help do the things you do. And this idea of directing your heart somewhere doesn't actually make sense to us in a modern age. But the scriptures are very clear in terms of the heart can be directed. God calls for the heart. And reminds us that modern psychology in its determinism is a worldview in which there is no God. And there is no supernatural working of God in the life of his people. But God does indeed change the hearts of his people as Christ himself gives us the very spirit of Christ. And so the question remains for us as a legitimate question. How do I tune my heart to sing God's praise? Well, a few things we can point out here. First, even as the hymn reminds us, the hymn itself is a prayer to God. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Prayer, right? Have you asked the Lord to change the affections of your heart, the desires of your heart? The psalmist does it all the time, right? Psalm 119, enlarge my heart that I might delight myself in your ways. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Prayer is the ways in which we tune our hearts to sing God's praises. It's why when we come into worship, we come prayerfully. We, we, we come praying that God, in meeting with him, in being reminded of his truths, of him coming to be with us, speaking to us, that in such things, God would tune our hearts to sing his praise. He would open them, enlarge in them, that they might love him more and more. The scriptures also not only call in prayer, but then positively calls us just to set our minds on the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
You see, the second commandment can only be fulfilled ultimately in Christ himself and the love that God has shown us in him. The love of Christ compels us, Paul says. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. And all of this has been accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God showed his love for us by giving us his son. And so as we then set our minds upon the love of God shown to us in Christ, dying on the cross for us, raised on the third day for us, seated today in heaven for us. As we think upon the love of Christ, as we think upon Christ's love for us, as he bears our names on his heart before our Father in heaven. And one of the most beautiful things pictured in the Old Testament was when the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. He'd appear before God. And on his breastplate would be 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The high priest's presence, um, entrance, and, and acceptance before God was a sign and seal of the fact that God received his people. And now today, Christ, our great high priest who loves us, is in the presence of, our very, of, of God himself, bearing our names upon his heart. And so as we set our own minds upon the love of God, it's then that we are moved in our love for him. And that comes supremely, centrally in the Christian life, in corporate worship. Right? This is the highlight of the Christian life. There's nothing greater in our lives than to come to worship God in the presence of God, we are indeed changed, reminded of God's love, reminded of his grace and of his mercy. But as we go out, of course, we don't simply commune with God here and nowhere else, but as we go out into the weeks, we are to be in communion with God through prayer and in our uh, in reading of his word. Very simple things, and I think so often, at least talking with many, many of you and doing counseling, there's a desire for what do I do? Like, there, I want to change, I want to grow, I want to mature, I want things to be different. What do I do? And we're looking for things to do all the time. Now, this commandment reminds us that true transformation begins with the heart, and so we must look to God to do that. But also, we, of, we, of, we often want kind of a complex routine. Give me a workout routine that I can kind of get this together. Give me something to do that I can improve and strengthen myself in this. But it's interesting that so many of us struggle with the simple things of reading our Bibles and praying every day. And so often we want the complex things when the simple things of just simply reading the word and prayer are, are neglected. And so then what we ought to do then is to think about our reading of the Bible and prayer, not just as, did I read my Bible today or did I pray? Because that doesn't sound all that, I mean, it sounds kind of bad if you didn't do it, but it's not that bad. But if you ask the question this way, have I communed and met with my God? Have I communed with the living God today? Well, to say no to that means you're in a pretty dire situation, right? Like, it's much more dangerous to think in terms of, I haven't met with God, the living God, versus I didn't read the Bible and pray, right? But it's in prayer and in reading our, the scriptures that we do commune with God. And so let us commit ourselves then to his word and to prayer, as the early church did and as we are to do today. As we said also, we are to diligently attend the means of grace. It's interesting that as the catechism fleshes out this commandment, 
that it reminds us that we ought not to have in our worship images and um, carve and 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 look to cre- uh, creaturely things, but it says that we ought to content ourselves with the lively preaching of God's word. The lively preaching of God's word, because it's in preaching that God speaks to us and communes to us. The preached word is the word of God speaking to you. And you might ask the question, you know, what does it say about a heart that is unsatisfied with the lively preaching of God's word? You know, what does it say about a heart that is disinterested in the lively preaching of God's word? It reveals a heart that has been separated and distanced from God, right? And so, as we bring ourselves and we bring our hearts, we ought then to diligently attend the means of grace, the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments and prayer. These are the things that define us and how God calls us. And also, finally, just to come to a conclusion here, Right As God renders and, and bear his own heart for his people, I am the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God. And he calls for the hearts of his people to give them to him. So as we express that in worship, most centrally, most um, importantly in our own lives, we're also finally reminded in this commandment that our worship is not something then that we prescribe And our worship is not something that we define in terms of what might God like, but rather we submit ourselves to the ways in which God has shown us how he ought to be worshipped. And this is what we often call the regulative principle of worship. We worship God not according to what we like or what God might like, but according to what God has prescribed for us in his word. And therefore, we do the things that we do. Uh, We come and we hear God's call to worship. We pray before him. We give offerings in worship of God. We hear him speak to us in the preaching of his word. We sing his praises. These are the things that God has prescribed for us in his word. So that in worship, as we engage ourselves in these things, we not only engage in the externals of that, but we bring our hearts before God in worship to him because God himself has shown us his heart. He has given us his son. He's shown us to be a jealous God, one who loves us and one who will love us now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you that you are indeed our God and we are your people. We pray then, Father, that our hearts would be rendered before you and that as we um, engage in many things, in worship especially, that our hearts would be hearts that are true, hearts that are devoted to you, hearts that look to you. And we pray, Father, that um, hypocrisy would be far from us. And we pray, Lord, that as we come before you, that our hearts indeed would be enlarged and that our hearts would be inflamed with a love that you have for us as we seek then in return uh, to love you and to walk in your ways. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.